Welcome to the Histrionics Podcast, where I review a few pieces of history that aren't very well known or deserve a little more attention. Today I'm going to discuss the assassination of a Swedish Prime Minister, the deadliest avalanche in United States history, and a monstrous fire in Japan. The events took place on February 28th, March 1st, and March 2nd. February 28, 1986. Olaf Palma, 26th Prime Minister of Sweden, is assassinated in Stockholm. Olaf Palma was a Swedish politician and statesman who served as Prime Minister of Sweden from 1969 to 1976 and 1982 to 1986. Palma led the Swedish Social Democratic Party from 1969 to until his assassination in 1986. On February 28th, Palma arrived at home at about 6.30 p.m. His wife told him she discussed seeing a movie with their son, Martin, a few hours earlier. She wanted to go with Martin and his girlfriend, who had already purchased tickets for themselves. Despite being Prime Minister, Palma chose to live life as an ordinary man and would often go without any bodyguard protection. The Palmas left their apartment unescorted at 8.30 p.m. Several people witnessed their short walk to the metro station and noticed the lack of bodyguards. The couple took the subway train to central Stockholm and then walked to the Grand Cinema. They met their son and his girlfriend just outside the cinema around 9 p.m. Olaf and his wife had not yet purchased tickets. Recognizing the Prime Minister, the ticket clerk wanted him to have the best seats and sold Palma the theater director's seats. After the screening, Olaf and Lisbeth headed towards the northern entrance of the metro station. They stopped at a few shops along the street on their way back. At 11.21 p.m., a man approached the couple from behind and shot Mr. Palma in the back at point-blank range. A second shot grazed his wife's back before the attacker ran away. A nearby taxi driver used his mobile radio to raise an alarm, and two girls in a passing car stopped to assist the victims. An ambulance, which just happened to be driving by the crime scene, was flagged down and assisted the victims as well. Olaf was rushed to the hospital but pronounced dead on arrival, just a few minutes after midnight on March 1, 1986. The only forensic leads left by the assassin were the two bullets fired, identified as 357 Magnum metal piercing rounds. Both bullets matched the lead fragments found in the clothing of Olaf and Lisbeth. Because the weapon was a revolver, which does not automatically eject cartridges, there were no cases to recover for ballistic examination. Only the two bullets recovered from the street. Investigators concluded they had been fired from a barrel no shorter than four inches. The murder weapon would have been a very large handgun. The most used weapon for this type of ammunition is the Smith & Wesson 357. Great efforts were made to locate a weapon of this make. Throughout the investigation, Swedish police test-fired approximately 500 Magnum revolvers. The investigation placed particular emphasis on tracking down 10 Magnum revolvers reported stolen at the time of the murder. All were located except one, a revolver stolen from the home of a Swedish filmmaker named Arne Saxdorf. 
the person who stole the weapon associated with drug dealers and claimed on his deathbed that he may have lent the gun to a man named Christer Peterson two months before the assassination. Another weapon featured in the investigation is a revolver of the same type with 357 Magnum caliber that was first purchased legally by a civilian in northern Sweden. The gun, along with almost a hundred metal-piercing bullets, was stolen in a burglary in 1983 and believed to be used in the robbery of a post office that same year. An analysis of a bullet fired during the robbery verified the bullets retrieved from the assassination were manufactured at the same time. In the fall of 2006, Swedish police received a tip and found a Smith & Wesson 357 revolver from a lake in Dalarna, where the post office had been robbed. The gun's serial number confirmed it was the same one used in the post office robbery. The gun was transferred to the National Laboratory of Forensic Science for further analysis. However, the laboratory concluded in May of 2007 that the tests on the gun could not confirm whether it was used in the assassination of the Prime Minister. There were numerous witnesses to the murder, with over 25 coming forward to police. The killer was described by witnesses as a man between 30 and 50 years old, about 6 feet tall and wearing a dark jacket. Many described the attacker as walking with a limp, but those testimonies were not given immediately after the murder, only after the arrest of Christer Peterson. Initially, many witnesses described the killer's movements as smooth, efficient, and powerful. No witness was in a position to observe the killer's appearance in any detail. The police searched Palma's apartment and Lisbeth and Martin's workplaces for wire-bugging devices, or traces of such equipment, but did not find anything. At the time, the statute of limitations for a murder charge in Sweden was 25 years. The law was later changed to prevent the Palma case from expiring. A number of theories surrounding the murder have surfaced. A Swedish extremist, Victor Gunnarsson, labeled in the media as the 33-year-old, was arrested for the murder but quickly released. Gunnarsson had connections to various extremist groups, including the European Workers' Party. Pamphlets hostile to Palma were found in his home outside Stockholm. Gunnarsson's body was found in 1993 in the Blue Ridge Mountains, stripped naked with two gunshot wounds to the back of the head. Some conspiracy theories suggest that Gunnarsson might have been used by a foreign government, who then killed him eight years later to leave no trace behind. In December of 1988, almost three years after Palma's death, Christopher Peterson, a criminal and addict who had done time for manslaughter, was arrested for the murder of Palma. He was picked out of a lineup as the killer by Lisbeth Palma. Peterson was tried and convicted of the murder. However, he was acquitted on appeal the following year. Peterson's appeal succeeded for three main reasons. Failure to produce the murder weapon, no clear motive for the killing, and doubts about the reliability of Mrs. Palma's testimony. There were also extremely gross errors by the police in arranging the lineup, such as making Peterson appear disheveled. Additional evidence against Peterson surfaced in the late 1990s, mostly coming from petty criminals who altered their stories, but also a confession made by Peterson himself. The chief prosecutor considered reopening the case, but acknowledged that a confession alone would not be sufficient. The prosecutor said, He must say something about the weapon, because the appeals court set that condition. While the legal case against Peterson remains closed, the police file on the investigation cannot be closed until both the murder weapon and the killer are found.
Christopher Peterson died on September 29, 2004, after suffering a brain hemorrhage caused by a fall during a seizure. According to a documentary program on Swedish TV in February of 2006, associates of Peterson claimed that he had confessed to them his role in the murder, but with the explanation that it was a case of mistaken identity. Allegedly, Peterson intended to kill a drug dealer who walked along the same street at night and resembled Palma both in appearance and the way he dressed. Other reporters heavily criticized the documentary, alleging that the filmmaker had fabricated a number of statements while omitting other contradictory evidence, in particular his chief source's earlier testimony that could not be reconciled with his claim to have seen the shooting. In 2018, journalist and investigator Thomas Peterson, a different Peterson, published a series of articles in the Swedish magazine Filter, and later a book called The Unlikely Assassin, based on the investigation into Palma's murder. Peterson's findings were also covered in other parts of the Swedish media. His theory is that Palma was shot by a man named Stig Engström, known as the Scandia Man. Engström worked for the Scandia Insurance Company, whose head office was located next to the murder scene. In early accounts, Engstrom had been treated mostly as a witness, by his own assertion as the first eyewitness to arrive at the scene of the murder. He had also been briefly investigated by the police as a possible suspect, but not for very long. Peterson suggests a scenario where Engstrom, who had a strong dislike of Palma and his policies, randomly came across Palma in the street and shot him, possibly without premeditation. Peterson also suggests that evidence from the crime scene strongly points towards Engstrom as the assassin. Most significantly, several other witnesses gave descriptions of the fleeing killer that match Engstrom, some of them very closely. No other witness placed Stig Engstrom at the scene after the shots, even though Engstrom himself claimed to have been present from the beginning. He said he spoke to Mrs. Palma and the police and made attempts to resuscitate the victim. However, Engstrom was unable to identify witnesses who arrived after the shooting. Engstrom also lied about his movements during the evening when questioned. His movements indicated that he had the opportunity to find Palma at the cinema earlier that evening and later follow him to the crime scene. Soon after the murder, Engstrom began a series of media appearances in which he developed an increasingly detailed story of his involvement in the events and criticized the police. He claimed those witnesses who had described the killer had in fact been describing him, running to catch up with police officers in pursuit of the assassin. The police became frustrated with Engstrom as an unreliable and inconsistent witness and soon classified him as a person of no interest. Peterson proposes Engstrom's media appearances were an opportunity and ultimately successful tactic devised to mislead investigators and later gain attention as an important witness neglected by the police. While Peterson's theory is built on circumstantial evidence, he suggests it might be possible to prove Engstrom's guilt conclusively by tracing and examining the murder weapon. According to Peterson's theory, the revolver was likely to have been one legally owned by an acquaintance of Engstrom, an avid gun collector. Although Engstrom had a negative view of the Prime Minister, as well as long-standing financial and growing alcohol problems, investigators still didn't have a clear picture of Engstrom's motive for killing Palma. A suspect identified only as G.H. in 1999 was of prime interest during the early investigation. This was based on a standard profile used by the police to identify an assassin. 
They concluded he had knowledge of handling firearms and owned a 357 Smith & Wesson Magnum. The suspect failed to appear for several police interrogations to testify during the 1990s. Later testimonies given by the suspect were deemed untrustworthy. This included the suspect's whereabouts during the night of the assassination and the disposal of firearms. He refused to submit his gun, the only registered 357 caliber weapon in the Stockholm region that had not been tested, and subsequently claimed to have sold it to an unknown buyer. G.H. had his gun license suspended after shooting his television, arguably after seeing Olaf Palma's face on the screen. G.H. had also been convicted for assault on two occasions. G.H. died in August of 2008. He shot himself when police rang his doorbell regarding an unrelated incident. He reportedly suffered from paranoia and depression. There are many other theories behind the murder of Olaf Palma. The Kurdistan Workers' Party the Yugoslavian secret police, a South African counterinsurgency unit, gunrunners in India, Chilean fascists, and the United States CIA. Here's my take on the assassination of Olaf Palma. It sounds like an organized hit. If this happened in Chicago, I would say it was probably random. And I don't know anything about the streets of Stockholm in the 1980s, but it sounds political. March 1st, 1910. The deadliest avalanche in the United States history buries a Great Northern Railway train in northeastern Washington, killing 96 people. It happened in a small railroad community called Wellington. Three days later, 63 railroad workers were killed in the Rogers Pass avalanche in nearby British Columbia. Leading up to the avalanche in Wellington, at the end of February, the area experienced a severe blizzard for nine straight days. Snow was reported to be falling on the small town at a rate of one foot per hour. Two trains, a passenger train and a mail train, both bound from Spokane to Seattle, were trapped in the depot. Wellington had snowplows and others were sent to help, but they could not penetrate the snow and repeated avalanches along the stretch of tracks between Scenic and Leavenworth. Late on February 28th, the snow stopped and was replaced by rain, warm wind, and thunderstorms. Just after 4 a.m. on March 1st, a slab of snow broke loose from the side of Windy Mountain after a lightning strike. A ten-foot-high mass of snow, half a mile long and a quarter mile wide, fell toward the town. The avalanche missed a hotel, which also housed the town's general store and post office, but hit the railroad depot head-on. Most of the passengers and crew were asleep aboard the trains. The impact threw the trains 150 feet downhill and into the Tai River Valley. Ninety-six people were killed, thirty-five passengers, 58 Great Northern employees on the trains, and three railroad employees in the depot. 23 people survived. They were pulled from the wreckage by railroad employees who immediately rushed from the hotel and other buildings where they had been staying. However, the work was quickly abandoned because of adverse weather conditions, and it was not until almost six months later, in late July, that the last body was retrieved. Wellington was quietly renamed Ty, T-Y-E, in October of the same year. 
Later that month, the Great Northern Railway began construction of concrete snow sheds to shelter the nearby tracks. The depot was closed when the second Cascade Tunnel was completed in 1929. The town was then abandoned and it eventually burned. The old track and snow sheds remain and have been preserved as part of the Iron Goat Trail, east of Everett, Washington. There is still train wreckage scattered all over the hillside, and it is still the deadliest avalanche in United States history. There have been 15 avalanches that were more deadly outside of the United States. Here's my take on the Wellington Avalanche. Pretty straightforward. A long, relentless snowstorm leads to a quick and brutal avalanche. There are a couple really interesting YouTube videos that show you this place in person, and it's amazing. Waterfalls cascade over certain parts of the snowsheds, too. It's really beautiful despite the very bleak history. March 2nd, 1657. The Great Fire of Myriki begins in Edo, modern-day Tokyo, causing more than 100,000 deaths before it exhausts itself three days later. The fire was said to have been started accidentally by a priest who was cremating an allegedly cursed kimono. It had been owned in succession by three teenage girls who all died before ever being able to wear the kimono. When the garment was being burned, a large gust of wind fanned the flames, causing the wooden temple to ignite. The fire began in Edo's Hongo district and spread quickly through the city due to hurricane-force winds which were blowing from the northwest. Edo, like most Japanese cities and towns at the time, was built primarily from wood and paper. The buildings were especially dry due to a drought the previous year, and the roads and other open spaces between the buildings were small and narrow allowing the fire to spread and grow quickly. Though Edo had a designated fire brigade, it had only been established for 20 years and was not large enough, experienced enough, or well-equipped enough to face a fire of this magnitude. On the second evening, the winds changed and the fire was pushed from the southern edges of the city back towards its center. The homes of the shogun's closest retainers were destroyed as the fire made its way towards the Edo castle at the very center of the city. Ultimately, the castle was saved, but most of the outer buildings and all of the retainers and servants' homes were destroyed. On the third day, the winds and flames died down, but thick smoke prevented movement throughout the city. The removal of bodies and reconstruction did not start for several days. Six days after the fire began, monks and others began to transport the bodies of people that were killed down the Sumida River to Hanjo, a community on the eastern side of the river. In Hanjo, pits were dug and the bodies were buried. The Hall of Prayer for the Dead was then built on the site. Reconstruction efforts took about two years. Streets were widened and some districts replanned and reorganized. Special care was taken to restore Edo's trade center, boosting the overall national economy to some extent. Commoners and samurai retainers were granted funds from the government for the rebuilding of their homes, and the restoration of the shogun's castle was left to be completed last. The area around the castle, as it was restored, 
was reorganized to leave greater spaces to act as firebreaks. Retainers' homes were moved further from the castle, and a number of temples and shrines were relocated to the banks of the river. One of the greatest disasters in Japanese history, the death and destruction incurred by the Mairiki Fire is almost comparable to the 1923 Great Kanto Earthquake and the 1945 bombing of Tokyo in World War II. Each of these events, like the Mairiki Fire, saw roughly 100,000 deaths and the destruction of an entire city. Here's my take on the Mairiki Fire. That's why our parents always said not to play with fire. You think it's under control until it's completely out of control. My goodness. And now for a few events that deserve less attention. I don't give a shit. March 2nd, 1903. In New York City, the Martha Washington Hotel opens, becoming the first hotel exclusively for women. Can you imagine how annoying that place would be? Flies on the wall were probably killing themselves. March 4th, 1966. In an interview in the London Evening Standard, the Beatles' John Lennon declares that the band is more popular than Jesus. Uh, who gives a shit? Maybe it's a sign of the times, but I think it's kind of funny. March 5th, 2021. Pope Francis begins a historical visit to Iraq during the COVID-19 pandemic. I'm not trying to take another shot at Christianity, but was it really historical? Do all of his trips fall into that category? that's going to do it for this week appreciate all you guys tuning in sorry those last two stories were kind of short but thought they were interesting i want to talk about them see you next week